Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. One of the most challenging scenarios for mentors and mentees alike is the struggling trainee. The trainee doesn't know what to do, and a lot of faculty also find it a challenge to know what to do or say to help trainee get back on track. So for this episode, we enlisted the help of Dr. Ahmer Karimuddin to talk about the topic of the struggling trainee. Dr. Karimuddin is a colorectal surgeon at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. Along with Dr. Tracy Scott, Dr. Karimuddin is the co-program director for the UBC General Surgery Program. We talked to him about how to approach the struggling trainee, as well as some of the innovative strategies the UBC program is utilizing to more objectively select residents. As always, we would love to hear your feedback at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or on Twitter at CanJSurge. It's truly an honor, particularly for me as, as your fellow, to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training? I think I can start without actually acknowledging that your radio voice or podcast voice is pretty on ball compared to your regular voice. That's pretty impressive, uh, Dr. Farouk. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, uh, I, I grew up in Mississauga uh, in Toronto, uh, just outside Toronto, and did my uh, medical school at Western, uh, where, you know, it's the home of general surgeons, where I think every year something like 10 to 15% of the class actually applies to general surgery programs. So I think my fate was sealed when I actually uh, got, got into medical school at Western, to be honest. Um, Brian, Brian Taylor, who was the chief of surgery at uh, at Western and at the University Hospital in London at that time, was one of my very first uh, mentors. Uh, he's a colorectal surgeon. And uh, in fact, he's the one who, when I changed, when I decided I wanted to do general surgery, he's the one who helped me find my electives uh, across the country because electives had been filled out by that time. So I really owe a lot of uh, kind of what, what, what unfolded after that to Dr. Brian Taylor. Um, I ended up in Saskatchewan for my general surgery training where, you know, I was uh, uh, trained by a prior editor of the Canadian Journal of Surgery, Dr. Roger Keith, uh, who was also the president of CAGS as well. Um, and then I did my colorectal surgery in Toronto where, uh, you know, you interviewed Helen McRae recently and uh, Marcus Bernstein as well, who are both one of my mentors, along with that Nancy Baxter, uh, Robin McLeod, Zane Cohen, all spectacular people who've uh, helped shape me into the surgeon that I am today. It's funny how many people talk about having a mentor that just really just saw something in them and took an interest in in, in their life and, and what they were doing. Uh, and you certainly seem to have found that in, in Brian Taylor. Do you do you have a sense of, of why he sort of I mean this is always a this is always a an interesting question question to ask a trainee, but do you get a sense of what, what it was that he kind of saw in you or why he took such an interest in, in, in you and arranged your electives and all those kinds of things? 
I, to be honest, uh, don't really think it had anything to do with me. I think it had to do with the fact that he was a type of person who, when someone went to them, saw that person as a true human being and did whatever he could to help them in that moment. And I think that's what I, what my, the mentor, the people who've been my mentors have really typified as I, is that they, and I saw this in action too, that it wasn't just me. If it wasn't me who showed up or someone else went and spoke to them, they would actually still go ahead and do their best to help them in every context. And that's what I, to be honest, I've taken away from those interactions. Whether it was Brian Taylor or Zane Cohen or Roger Keith, if you went to them as a student or as a colleague or as a resident and asked them for help, they would do whatever, wherever it was in their power to, to, to be able to help you uh, because they saw you as the human being sitting across from them who was coming asking for something that was theirs to give and that's something that they could do. And so I don't think Dr. Taylor saw anything special or unique in me. Uh, if he did, that's pretty awesome because I don't think I saw it in myself back then. But what he did see was someone who came to him for help and he did not turn me away. Well, you, as usual, you're probably being too humble and, and too kind as as always. Um, you know, you did your master's while you were a resident. And then uh, after fellowship, you went on to be a, a community general surgeon in Victoria. And, and you and I have talked about this a fair amount in terms of how important that experience was to you and your formation. Can you talk a little bit about why, you know, those few years that you spent as a surgeon in Victoria were so important to you and, and how that perhaps shaped your career going forward? So, uh, you know, one of the funny things about, about that, about Victoria was that prior to me actually going to work in Victoria, I had only been to Victoria uh, for a CSF. Like I'd never actually gone to Victoria on its own. And, uh, and there I showed up uh, to work because when I finished my fellowship, that was really the only place that was looking for a colorectal surgeon for work uh, around the country, which is, uh, you know, very similar to what the market is like these days. And what was unique about Victoria at the time was it's a large tertiary services uh, location where everything gets done locally and nothing gets set, set away, sent away except for transplantation. Um, all the surgeons there had subspecialty training, but uh, Dr. Alan Hayashi, who's a, you know, one of the Edmonton style uh, master surgeons, who was a pediatric surgeon, but was also chair of the provincial breast surgery program and was one of the, that's probably one of the most high volume endocrine practices in the country between adrenals and thyroids and parathyroids. You know, like a true master surgeon. And he, has a, he had a rule in Victoria when he was a division head was that even though you may be a colorectal surgeon or an HPV surgeon or, or whatever, but on call, you have to tackle everything and you couldn't hand stuff off. Um, and so that really, in those the, my four years that I was in Victoria, taught me to be able to, uh, how to handle difficult situations, how to stay out of trouble. And if you get into trouble, how to get out. Um, you know, asking for help was really important because you needed to know when you needed help and your colleagues were all busy and you had to, you know, you had to make sure you really needed them. Um, and along with that, most of your work was a GP assist who sometimes are exceptional. Um, you know, this is a shout out to, to Dr. Ted Perrin, who was my GP assist for many years who in Victoria, who was spectacular, but some who weren't that good and you had to be able to direct them and interact with them. And so by the time I started having residents join me in my clinical work, which is about two years into practice, I really felt that, uh, you know, that I could, I could help them solve their way through cases and direct them in a way that may actually prepare them better for independent practice. And I think that's been um, helpful uh, for me specifically. 
it certainly is a different pace uh, than perhaps uh, what is uh, sometimes found in more academic centers that, that have a lot of residents. Um, so oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about the pace, right? I mean, William Oram, who was the senior colorectal surgeon there in Victoria at the time, in a, in a list that would start at 750 and finish at 330, he would do like a low anterior resection, an APR, and a right hemi and still be done by around 230 or 245. Yeah, it's, a, it's almost uh, unbelievable how fast uh, some of these very experienced surgeons and, and with the right conditions, of course, uh, they could just be unbelievably fast. What what was it then that sort of ultimately made you come uh, from that very high-paced, high, high, highly clinical role in Victoria uh, over to St. Paul's uh, in a more academic setting? This was, That was one of the most, I think, difficult decisions I ever had to make when about three and a half years into my time in Victoria, uh, my future colleagues, Carl Brown and Manoj Raval, uh, offered me the chance to come and join them here in Vancouver. Um, for me, the, the draw from the non-clinical side was the area around postgraduate medical education. Uh, Victoria has a thriving distributed medical education site where we have uh, medical students who would work their way through and I spent a lot of time with them. However, my first love was always postgraduate medical education um, and I always wanted to have more and me meaningful and direct interactions with residents and uh, and that wasn't going to be possible in the long run in Victoria for me. And so the, having that opportunity to come to Vancouver to build a fellowship program, to engage in truly kind of coordinary colorectal surgery was something that would only be possible in Vancouver. And, you know, when you see the caliber of, of my partners like Carl Brown, Manoj Raval, Terry Pang, it becomes obvious why I would want to, why I would want to move because they're just all such exceptional and welcoming people. Um, you know, I left a, you know, a practice in Victoria that was quite busy and moved to a new practice in Vancouver. And to be honest, I didn't miss a beat because they supported me so well in that early phase. And uh, and since then, you know, I have to be honest, I, I miss the people in Victoria, but I but from a clinical practice perspective, I haven't looked back because things have been so good for me with this group specifically. One of the things we wanted to ask you a little bit about was your, your role as the, as the co-program director at UBC. Was that something that you always saw yourself doing or how did you sort of come into that role? How did you end up there? I'll be honest. I can't explain why from the day in residency that I realized I wanted to do more than just clinical surgery. I knew I wanted to be a program director. And when people ask me about that, because, you know, it's always one of the things I think about. The big reason for me is that it kind of feels like a safe and almost an altruistic position to come from. I mean, you know, for your faculty, you're the person who's trying to make the residency or training experience better. It doesn't benefit you in any meaningful way specifically because as a program director, right? It's not like, you know, you're, you're getting paid anymore or you're going to get any plaudits or awards of the program or the training experience is better. But it's uh, so you're coming from a fairly wholesome and safe space. And for the individual residents, what you're trying to do is help them make be better to do better and to succeed. And from that perspective, it's I just feel that it's a uh, it's all it's a very safe space for me to be in because I'm always advocating for something that's easy to advocate for. Um, and for me specifically, the idea of being a co-director was really important because I think surgical residency is amazingly complicated. Uh, it's becoming more and more diverse, both in training sites, both in the type of training and the type of training residency, and also in the type of trainees and faculty members we have. So having someone like Dr. Tracy Scott, who's my partner in this, to work on this in tandem, I think has been a real value because we see the world in slightly different ways. And that slightly different ways seems to bring the whole world into focus a little bit better. Yeah, I think that's, that's beautifully stated. And it, it makes complete sense to me. You, you know, you've sort of described, I think, 
piece by piece how, how you view the role of, as program director. But I, I'm curious, you know, broadly, maybe two questions. Has it been the the sort of experience that you that you thought it would be? And I'm curious what what sort of um, particular changes uh, you and Dr. Scott have have implemented recently at the in the UBC program because certainly the, the residents and the and particularly the applicants across the country really see it as a as a leadership uh, type program well thanks for that Chad you know in this upcoming farms year where we haven't been able to have electives and stuff you know we're all very nervous about how pro people perceive us because we haven't had a chance to show them what our culture and what our day-to-day lives are like I think for both uh, Tracy and I, it was really important to build a program that felt home in the, in the 2020s. Um, you know, many people, when they think about medical education or surgical practice or surgery, they, they, they like to think back to the good old days, you know, when, which were neither as good and are neither or as old as we like to think that they are. But, you know, we always reflect back to some kind of glorious past where things were better and residents were better and experiences were better. But the trouble is that, you know, in 2020, our world, both in surgery and and, and, and and around us, has been rapidly changing. And modern surgery, as Chad, you know, someone like in your practice, you reflect every day, is so frighteningly chaotic and complex. This is not in a bad way, but but, but specifically in a way where it's just really hard to do things in a predictable way. You know, quality improvement, people like to talk about these PDSA cycles, right? Like plan, do, study, act. But in surgery and in our worlds as you know, surgical leaders and administrators, we're often dealing with things that are unstable. And so you have to do something and then respond to that and almost be, be, pro, be reactive as opposed to being truly proactive. And what Tracy and I kind of in our conversations really have realized is that for us, the only thing that we can actually be proactive about is about our principles. And we spent a lot of time going over these and sharing them with our residents and our faculty, which was that we really had to treat everyone, which included residents and, and faculty, as human beings. Because at the end of the day, that's what we all really are. We're all human beings who are trying to figure out how to get through this complex, chaotic world, who have now committed to being excellent surgeons as faculty and training excellent surgeons as residents. And so that in itself is kind of the principles where we come from. That led us to, you know, doing a number of kind of innovative things around the province, which I think have been quite helpful. Uh, you know, we're a distributed program of something like, I think, 35 different sites across BC. Um, so, you know, for example, you know, I'll give you a simple example. We took our academic half days, which were always a challenge because residents wouldn't show up. They would always find something more important to do. And we would go from taking attendance to uh, doing all kinds of things to make sure that they would arrive. And finally, it was like, why aren't they coming? And the issue was, was that they didn't, they felt that we were pulling them away from more fun surgery. And, you know, Chad, you can reflect on this as a resident, I'm sure Amir can as well. Academic half day was never as fun as being in the OR, um, especially as a senior resident. And so what we decided to do was that we said, okay, well, if that's the case, we're going to deliver a lot of the educational content online through the American College of Surgeons' uh, score curriculum, which is phenomenal. And we actually got that idea from Tony, Tony McLean in Calgary, who had uh, bought that for the residents in Calgary. But then what we did was we actually decided that every three months we were going to have a full-day symposium that was not going to be just for our senior residents, but it was also going to be all for all of our provincial faculty. Uh, so, that every, so that our senior residents could come and learn with the provincial uh, surgeons. Because if it was relevant to you, Chad Ball, as a practicing surgeon, how could it not be relevant to me as a resident? And you were actually there for the very first one that we did, which was the acute care surgery module. You know, you were lucky enough to have you come and join us as a visiting professor. 
And as you saw, we had 30 residents, but we also had 35 faculty members who were there. And one of the things that each of the residents said was, I didn't think I could leave the room because there was Dr. Sampath, who's the chief of surgery in Richmond, who was there the entire time. And there was, you know, Dr. Ball who sat there and heard it the entire time. And since that time over the last three years, we've had, I think now, 12 of those symposiums. Attendance has been 100%. Uh, we've had over 30 faculty at each of those sites, which has preserved over COVID and over through Zoom. And that really has been quite novel. So that really came from an idea that we we're going to treat our residents as humans, that, you know, well, let's find out what's valuable to them. Why aren't they coming? And instead of trying to tell them what to do, let's work with them to make a better structure for them. I love that concept of of adhering to principles as opposed to just, you know, like a certain rigid structure for the program or a certain particular format for the program. Um, and, and one thing I wanted to pick up on, you know, you made it seem like, oh, this is so easy. You know, this is something I love. I, I just advocate on behalf of of the residents and this is great and you know you, you made it sound so easy but uh, one of the chief residents and I uh, had this conversation when, when we were in fifth year and I said to him you know if anyone offered me the chance to be the program director I don't know if I would take it not not that I think someone would offer me that just to be clear but it's such a difficult role because you get it from both the residents you know if the re- residents don't like what's happening they give it to you and then the faculty, uh, you know, they also, you know, if there's changes that you make that force them to make a different uh, change to the way they practice, they don't like it either. So how do you kind of reconcile those competing forces or those competing kind of interests? So a lot of conversations. And I think it's also really important for people to realize where you're coming from and what your perspective because I think what people react to, which I think applies in many different ways in our lives, is when, we, when you tell people what to do and they can't really understand the principle behind which you're coming from, they're, they, they, they'll react and push back. But if you talk to them about the principle and why you're doing what you're doing and what's driving this change, they may be unhappy about your decision, but they can't argue with the principle because the principle is something that I think we all agree on. So whether it's the competency by a competency-based medical education model that all colleges laid out, or whether it's as whether it's that, you know what, talking to a resident in this way or changing the rotation schedule at the last minute isn't the, isn't the human or the nice thing to do, that helps, I think, contextualize many of those conversations. So, you know, for example, when Tracy and I took on this role, we actually, you know, I told you earlier, we have almost 40 distributed sites. Well, before COVID hit, we actually physically went to each of these sites. We went to Cranbrook, we went to Prince George, we went to Campbell River, we went to every location around the province where our residents go. It was a big time commitment, but we went everywhere and told them what our principles were, that we were going to treat the residents and faculty as human beings. We were going to be committed to training excellent surgeons. We wanted residents to have ownership of their learning experiences. And we made sure that we spoke to this repeatedly to the residents. And then these were principles that we held ourselves accountable to in the first six months to a year or so as we went forward. And and now I think you know, now that we're kind of almost like three years into the process and gone through a roll college accreditation process, everybody knows what these principles are. And so when we have debates and conversations and disagreements about something, we always pull back to these kind of founding principles and say, okay, well, does this response align with these principles? And if it does, then we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work, you can tell me that I'm wrong, but and then we'll try and find another solution. Uh, but it's the principles that you have to align yourself with. And I think, you know, then I think it's harder for people to come at you from all sides, you know? That's an amazing story. I, I didn't 
of course realize that you too had had done that and you know that kind of effort and that olive branch to these sites um i can only imagine how, how much that that meant that's that's absolutely marvelous i also know the whole country is talking about you know your quarterly structure in terms of a, a full day um educational event for the residents that is being taught from all around the province as well and so congrats congrats on that you, you know one of the interesting things and i know morad would be okay with me telling you this is that before he uh gave it a go as as a program director uh you know at, at ubc he was very unsure sort of because of what amir had said just you know as we all know morad does a lot of different things and was worried about it the time commitment but you know what one of the things that i when he and i talked about it before he took that role that i thought was potentially really really uh good for him because he is so good at it is to is to interact with and and try and help the struggling trainee so clearly that reputation follows you as well and it, i'm curious how how you determine who's struggling and how you frame that that scenario and in particular that initial interaction with that individual so i think it's fair and i and i think it's going to be important for me to say this that we have to make sure as we talk about this we don't make struggling or having difficulty or any of the synonyms that people might want to use as some kind of a negative word i think you know chad you and i were residents together at the, you know at the same time in different programs but as you when you think back to that time we, you know we struggled you know the, we struggled a lot as we went to work our way through residency and the only way in time you know when people when you look back at your success and achievement you sometimes you gloss over the struggle but the only way you become the person that you are and the senior leader like you are chad is through struggling and pushing yourself and part of the human experience of training is there always has to be struggle we spend a lot of time talking to our residents about this idea that in surgical residency you have to spend time in what's called a zone of proximal development this is an educational and a psychological term that people use a lot but the idea simply is is that you will only learn when you're outside your comfort zone and the tasks you have to do are just outside just outside your intellectual clinical and technical abilities as a surgeon so that idea of residency being a struggle is critically important and one of the things that i say to my trainees and i and i learned this from tracy is that you know is that if you spend a day where you didn't enter the zone of proximal development for a resident that's a wasted day uh, and most of our residents are pr- pretty good at this because you know they're resilient they're strong and passionate about their work and they want to be pushed um but but the resident who's truly is struggling and having trouble usually gets brought to our attention in our program in th- kind of three ways uh the first and to be honest the least often taken path is when a resident comes to us directly and says you know i'm struggling with something it could be you know managing juniors on call it could be rounding on the ward it could be laparoscopic surgery it could be anything but when it does happen and a resident comes to us directly and raises this issue that actually is probably one of the most amazingly productive and critically important uh, encounters a program director now that happens to you as a mentor and as a faculty lead i so i really want to encourage you to to own that moment because the resident in that moment is making themselves vulnerable and trusting you and hoping that you have a solution that they can find for their problem so that i think is really important the other part though the track that occurs is when a faculty member reaches out to us as a program director and says you know what uh, chad i'm having trouble with amar because he's not uh, doing this well or he's not he's having difficulty with this and again 
I would say that as a program director or as even as a division head or any leadership position, it's an important moment because a faculty member is now displaying concern for a resident, but is also reaching out for help and figuring out how to guide the training and help them find their path through. So as a program director and as a leader, it's really important that you make time for these kind of conversations uh, because as a program director, you can provide perspective to the faculty member and the resident and to help figure out why someone is struggling. The final pathway, which tends to be the most challenging one, to be honest, is when something randomly shows up on an evaluation. So in our program, um, Tracy and I review all the resident evaluations kind of on an ongoing basis. Then we have a competency promotions and remediation committee that's composed of nine surgeons and a senior resident who go over these evaluations on a six monthly basis as well. And so sometimes we'll pick up something, wait a second, they hear they said that um, Chad's been having a really tough time uh, generating differential diagnoses with acute care surgery cases. How come this didn't get picked up or no one brought this to our attention? And then that is a, then you're playing catch up because you've fallen behind. Um, so in our program, we rely on that competency promotion and remediation committee to actually be our last level filter. Um, and along with that, we ask the residents to keep a dashboard and a tracker form that helps us kind of keep track of these things uh, and helps us contextualize evaluations. But those are kind of the three ways that we find out or determine that a resident is struggling. I find it so interesting, first of all, that you picked apart the term struggling, because I, I think you're right that we don't, you know, we don't always think about it like that. But actually, the process of you having trouble or the process of you trying to grow is not an easy one and is often quite painful. And the other thing is that, you know, one of the things that I've observed is that it actually takes a lot of courage, both from a faculty perspective and a trainee perspective to acknowledge that there's something going wrong. Like, you know, it would be much easier for faculty members to actually just kind of almost sweep it under the rug or just sort of allow that person to pass a rotation because in some ways it's very difficult to actually, um, it's, it's very difficult to fail someone, you know, to be to be blunt. And so I'm, I'm curious how you make it possible for trainees and faculty alike. Like how do you create a culture where you don't have that sort of negative uh, stereotype around identifying uh, uh, issues and identifying problems and, and bringing that to attention? So I think first we need to just acknowledge the fact that we're surgeons and uh, and I, and you know, Amir, I'll, uh, and Chad, uh, Chad will agree with us. I'm pretty sure I would challenge you to find me a surgeon who didn't uh, think badly of themselves when they had a negative encounter happen or they had a negative complication. So as surgeons, we always have a hard time with difficult news. And so we shouldn't expect our trainees to be any different than that, right? There's a lot of, I think, stress and blame that goes along with even to ourselves when something bad happens. But one of the things that helps us is that, you know, when I have an anastomotic leak and I'm feeling really crappy, one of the first things one of my colleagues or someone would say is, well, you know, for these low rectal cancers and anastomotic, there's a 10% anastomotic leak rate and our rate on this trip is like five-ish, so you're okay, right? So that's kind of, you know, you try to contextualize it. Well, you know, if you look at any of the HR literature for people in law or accounting or senior management in, in large corporations, there's about a 10 to 15% attrition rate and about a 15 to 20% or even higher sometimes of bad kind of quarterly evaluations, which I think is kind of surprising when we think about that, but is probably reflective of the real world. Because if you think about it, you know, there's that, there's that uh, 
Murphy's law or some kind of law that people talk about, right? Where they say that you get promoted until the level of your incompetence. And so there's a funny way of looking at it, but there's also actually a real way is that you actually keep progressing until you struggle and until you reach a spot where your skill set isn't going to be sufficient. And so we shouldn't expect our residents to be any different than that. And I think that's really important for our program and for uh, faculty and for residents to understand that even though all of our faculty, even though all our residents are amazingly bright and talented individuals, they're going to reach a point where they are going to struggle. And that's an important thing for all of us to keep talking about and acknowledging. And along with that, it may be the fact that, that for some of these people who are in the world of general surgery, uh, it may not be their long-term home. You know, if you've got a system with, 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 with CARMs and everything else, makes it really hard for people to get a real experience of what it's like. So, you know, in the U.S., there's like an 8 to 10% attrition rate. And I think that Canadian rate is the same for, surgery, for all residency programs. And surgery is no higher than that. So, you know, there is going to be that space where there's going to be a group of people who are going to struggle. And we have to accept that and acknowledge that that's normal. Well, it's so hard because, you know, most people, by the time they get to the residency point, have actually never, no, I shouldn't say never had to struggle, but, you know, they've, they've consistently been at the, the top performers in, in their class and university. And then uh, they all clearly had a competitive application in medical school to get a spot uh, at the residency level. So, so it's often sort of, sort of very humbling to have these moments where you realize, wow, there's so much that I have to learn and there's so much that I have to get, I have to get better at. Um, yeah. And I, I think Amir, when you look at that specific comment, right? Like we, I, we're going through CARMS process right now and we're looking through files and for shortlisting and things like that. And the overarching response of most of our faculty, many residents, when they look at those files is how did I ever get in all those years ago compared to the CVs of these medical students? And when we meet with these medical students and these residents, you know, we all say that they're talented and, and intelligent and well-intentioned people. And yet here they are, right? They're kind of struggling. Um, and so what I think it's really important for as, a, as trading programs, just to emphasize again, is that having people on remediation tracks shouldn't be considered a bad thing. Identifying residents who may need extra attention, it's not a bad thing. In fact, it's kind of the human thing to do to give people an opportunity to respond or show that show you and show themselves that they can succeed. You know, having having said all that, um, I, I I do wonder um, having having seen firsthand a few residents that have that have really had trouble uh, during residency, and you know, a few of them who ultimately had to transfer out uh, or or quit the program. Uh, I wonder if if there are any sort of consistent characteristics or uh, you know, issues that you notice that, that residents seem to have. And I, and I know that's a very general, broad, sweeping kind of question, but I, I wonder if there's, there are any qualities that you, you notice that, uh, that residents who are really, really having a tough time uh, tend to share. So I'll work my way through this in kind of parts because, you know, you've asked a broad question. So I think the first thing to remember is that for many trainees, when we tell them or they're first informed that they're struggling, it's to be honest, it's, to, it's a real honest shock followed by some level of disbelief, right? Like these are people who are successful and talented, who've had success in most things in their life. Uh, they're working endless hours in residency, running around, doing all kinds of work. And in the midst of all this, where they feel like they're, you know, they're, they're at their wit's end, they're, we're now telling them they're struggling. And usually behind this is the fact that no one's really told them this before. They may have had a vague comment a preceptor had made on during rounds or at a coffee break. 
or someone couched it in a feedback sandwich, you know, where like, you know, you're a really nice person. We love working with you. And, you know, you did a great job on call last night. But, you know, but you did this thing really, had trouble with this thing. But, but, you, but we really like you and you work really hard. So that feedback sandwich actually makes the whole kind of problem just kind of dis- disappear. The message disappears. You know, in our program, when we looked at our narrative comments on forums, they were like less than 10 words most of the time. So residents don't really have a lot of insight on this issue because we don't often talk to them about that way. Um, and when we tell them to get what they and when we then when they ask most faculty members what they can do to get better, they usually say get told and, and we've all heard this read more work harder and pay more attention. And you know, those aren't really actionable things, right? Like they, they don't so if they don't know what the problem is, and we can't tell them how to fix it, they're going to react to that kind of struggle in a negative way. Um, so what I often say is that the most important part of, of dealing with the residents or the resident who's struggling and what probably unites all the residents who are struggling is an issue around insight. And the insight issue is related to the, the difficulties with feedback and it's related to the difficulties with, uh, with faculty members giving that feedback. We can't kind of feel mostly caught up in the human reaction of the moment that we can't say the hard thing that's, that's important to say. And that, I think, makes things really difficult. You know, in our program, this was, I think, about a year and a half ago now, we had all of our faculty and our residents go through this thing. And this is a plug I'll make for the Crucial Conversations course that this company called Vital Smarts puts on. Uh, it's basically a one-day course, which is, I think has been amazingly helpful for our faculty that, focuses, that, that helps you learn to focus on the issue without sugarcoating, but remembering that you're talking to a human being who has feelings, but also prioritizing that it's important for the resident to hear this feedback. So the idea that you need to tell them what the problem is that you want them to improve on is at the core of that kind of interaction to help them get insight on this. So, um, uh, so yeah, that's where I kind of would say is that the issue is always, almost always insight as being the common issue. And then, it'd be, then it falls on us as faculty members and program directors to help them get that insight. I couldn't agree with everything you, you just said, you know, so, so deeply. It, it sounds like this is the course I should take because I think, I think we all struggle with that from, from time to time for sure. I, I'm curious, when you're evaluating CARMS applications, what are some of the, the, maybe the absolute red flags that you would counsel uh, potential medical students against? And what are some of the big, bright, shining lights that really stand out to you in these applications, things, things you love? So both sides of that of that equation. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I will say that if it anywhere in a CARMS application, which includes the the, the the dean's letter, where all of the evaluation narrative comments are, or in the reference letters, there's any comment about how the resident was difficult to work with or had uh, uh, challenging encounters with the with with other healthcare providers at UBC, that becomes a really big red flag. Because for us, the idea that people have to learn to work together and and to be uh, honest partners and looking after patients is really important. Um, and so that, for us, to be honest, is our only significant real red flag is this idea of having to, you know, having had conflict uh, in those encounters. Um, I think, you know, for most medical students and residents, it's really important to remember that every day on clerkship and every day of residency and fellowship is actually a job interview. And every encounter you have while you're at work 
is a job interview. And as long as you're able to remember that and be able to kind of fo- keep your behavior focused in that kind of line, you end up getting really good uh, evaluations, really good reference letters. And, you know, one of the most uh, wonderful reference letters that I recently uh, read was someone made a comment that if uh, that that uh, if this person became a surgeon, they would let, you know, they, they would want this, uh, they would want that medical student to be their partner in, in time. And I think that's always a resounding kind of uh, uh, reference to get. Uh, so I think those kinds of comments are people within the field of general surgery feel that this person can be a colleague and an ally are always comments that I take very, I take very much to heart. Oh, sorry. There's, there's the, amb- the customary ambulance going by St. Paul. Amir, have you been shot? <laughs> well, I, he's sitting in a room that's the size, I think it's about the half the size of your probably your warrior closet at home right now, uh, Chad. So there's no way he got shot in there. <laughs> I'm very well protected. I'm, I'm, I'm a, feet, a few good. feet away very from good. the operating room, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> so going back to the whole, um, the, the, you know, the concept of, a trainee who's who perhaps is really having a tough time. I, I, I won't say struggling anymore because you know we, we've talked about how maybe that's maybe that's not a, such a bad thing to struggle. But let's say you know the the trainee who's really having a tough time, um, and they don't seem to have much insight into what's going on uh, with their behavior or with their performance. How do you actually you know get that trainee to have some insight? Like you know you, you talked about. Um, you know, sitting down with them and saying, look, there are some concerns. Um, and you talked about take, doing the whole crucial conversations kind of method. But what if that person just doesn't seem to get it? Now, how do you approach that? Right. So I think one of the things, so let's, so I'll walk you through our process that we actually recently went through with one of our residents and I'll, you know, and, and, and I'll be honest, this is, this is something that takes a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. And, and I think for uh, Tracy and I, it's something we take very seriously because one of the things we have to remember that as part of the CARMS process, these people have entrusted their program that they're at with their future and we're training them really well. So I think this is something we have to take quite seriously. And I, most program directors across the country do take this quite seriously. And I think this is the one thing that drives people to become program directors to do the job around remediation and helping struggling residents uh, do better is kind of what drives most of us who do this work. So the first thing that we do in, in kind of that first meeting with the resident when we've been told something is we try and get as much information as we can. We want to make sure so if it's a bad evaluation, we call up the faculty site lead at that rotation, ask them what they thought, confirm that the larger group felt this way as well. So it wasn't just one person who thought that uh, that Chad wasn't doing well. It was the group that came to this. So we then we sit the resident down. We actually have a set designated meeting. Uh, we make sure that they weren't going through some kind of illness or personal stress because, you know, humans can struggle when their world is off kilter. So you want to make sure that all of that is in place. You know, we also, in that conversation, really focus on reminding the resident that we're committed to their long-term success and that many residents will struggle. And we then talk to them about the area where the faculty identified where the struggle was. If you can reach common ground by talking about the faculty members who saw this and your own interactions with it, then it's awesome, right? Because then you've reached a moment where you can talk about how to mitigate and modify for the future. Uh, and to be honest, in this, it's usually a conversation takes about an hour. But by talking about the evaluation from a site and everything else, we are able to find insight many of our residents in this encounter. But, you know, in this specific encounter, we couldn't find insight with, with the resident uh, after the first meeting. So we, Tracy and I asked them to step away and set up another appointment with them in a week. 
And then we actually speak to our CPR committee, which again, as I said, is a group of nine surgeons and a senior resident who go over all the prior evaluations to see if there were any pieces of information or nuggets that were missed before. And then, uh, we, you know, the conversation becomes even more crucial in a way. We go over the initial concern, talk to them about the fact that the CPR committee has now looked over it and, and what their perspective was. Um, and we then ask the resident how, what they've thought about uh, over the last week or so. And we also kind of point out in this encounter, this is the part that I think is different, but we've learned this from our post-grad faculty leads. And actually, in a way, from Morad as well, uh, Morad Hamid, is that we tell the resident we're not there asking them to leave or kicking them out, but this is a concern and one that has to be dealt with. And so, if we frame it in that context and make sure that we they know that we're there for them, the second meeting tends to work uh, become quite powerful because by then they've actually had time to think and process, and they're past the shock and denial kind of aspect of it. But I think the, so that so so I think that really helps. I think what you were trying to get at though in your question, Amir, is that what if this is someone who's been having trouble over and over and over again? You know, we've, we're now on operation number, you know, we're on sorry, we're now on evaluation number five or six where the same issues come up, or it's something that sorted out shortly and then you know presented itself again. Uh, these are difficult things, um, you know. One of the things that helps in, in with all residents in remediation or how we're having difficulty to make sure that they don't regress back is to identify a faculty mentor for them who's there for support and guidance, not for judgment. And in our program, we often with these remediation things, actually, we don't make it a secret, to be honest. Um, we want the resident to, 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 to raise the faculty around them to say, you know, I'm struggling with developing treatment plans for unwell patients or I'm struggling with laparoscopic procedures or directing my assistants. Can I work with you today? And I think we try to normalize that process. There's less chance of regression or falling back again, but it can happen. You know, we've got residents who have trouble identifying an R1, they get better in the moment. And then when they transition to a role as a senior resident, they regress a little bit. Um, and the theory on this from a psychological perspective is actually quite interesting. It's that if you struggle at something once, it requires a lot of your focus. And sometimes if you have to put a lot of your focus on learning something new, like acquiring laparoscopic skills or uh, running a trauma team, um, you have suddenly begin to have difficulty with things you hadn't had difficulty with in a year or two, like dealing with an acutely unwell patient. And so this idea of progression and regression becomes, a, uh, becomes something that requires focus. Um, and so this is the lens which you should talk to our residents who are having trouble and uh, who are in difficulty. But if it happens again and again, that's when it becomes hard, to be honest, because we need to ensure that the residents accept, and, and this is important for us to keep this lens as well, is that we've got their best interests at heart and we are committed to training them and helping them grow. Uh, and we're help, we want to see them happy and succeed. Uh, and so what we talk to them about in this context is that, you know, you're working really hard, you're struggling for six months, a year, a year and a half, and you're to achieve a barely competent level through training, which is going to continue maybe even in practice in the future. And so we know that there's this group of skills in surgery that are really hard and challenging for you. And so do you want to spend the rest of your life having this much focus and attention paid on just this part of your practice? 
to the detriment of your other goals and the detriment of your personal life and other things that come along the way? Is certainly that important to you that you're willing to spend all this time and energy to maintain a competent but not excellent or exceptional level of performance? You know, are you sure the general surgery is what you want to do? And do they come back and say, no, the answer is yes. I've always wanted to be like Chad Ball and I want to be Chad Ball and I want to figure out how I get there. Then, you know, then it becomes really hard because as surgical educators, we, got, we have to have a commitment to train them and to help them grow. Um, as long as the challenges aren't related to patient safety and professionalism issues. But if they are actually able to come to a realization on their own that the answer is no, then we have to help them find a way through that and figure it out. And to be honest, in the last kind of, you know, three years now as program director, we've been able to find this space with most of our residents because they see us coming at it from a human perspective. And that's been um, quite helpful. What I will say is that this mostly applies to clinical training, right? Like if it's a professional issue, professionalism issue, uh, those need to be called out right away. And there has to be less gray area for those. So if you've got a resident who's having issues with patients and colleagues and other healthcare providers, You've got to call them out right away and stop it right, right now, because if you let those kinds of behaviors slide once or you walk past it once, by just walking past it, you justified it and it becomes really hard to correct years down the road. I'm curious if you've actually seen a lot of trainees sort of turn things around, like, you know, you have that really struggling trainee who maybe was really having a tough time. And then, you know, you had these conversations with them, uh, you know, in my experience, again, which is which is very limited, just having seen some of my peers go through things. It seems like, the, you know, it's, it is very difficult. Once a resident has sort of been identified as struggling, it often becomes very difficult for them to kind of pull things around or turn things around because they sort of have this, the weight of expectation upon their head and, mm-hmm. and they kind of feel these eyes looking at them and, and watching the back of their head all the time. And so it becomes kind of this like self-fulfilling cycle where they can never sort of seem to get out of it. And and they themselves start to feel victimized. Uh, you know, I could specifically think of, of one person who I saw kind of fall into this cycle. And I can think of, of really only one resident uh, that I know who really turned things around as a senior resident and uh, and became a stellar surgeon uh, by the end of training. Like how often do you find that trainees really can take, uh, you know, challenges that are happening to them? Like, let's say outside of, uh, you know, personal things that might be happening. How often do you find that residents are able to turn things around and and really uh, become excellent surgeons once they've been identified as struggling? So I, I think that's a really important point because there is a whole cycle, psychological impact of having difficulty and struggling and being called out over and over again. And that can take a psychological toll. And I think as programs one of the things that's really important is that when a resident is uh is having difficulty and is having a difficulty achieving or maintaining competencies we do it's really important we get them in touch with things like the resident wellness office and all the physician support programs that are actually in place to help with that uh because it, because that's really the only way to successfully remediate and create a strategy that works that has to be tied to an overall wellness strategy um, so i think that part is really important because if they are if they are well and they're intellectually and emotionally in a good space, they'll figure out a way of getting through that struggle as they're committed to it, you know, but we need to be able to provide that as a profession and as a training program program, we need to provide that scaffold that actually supports and, uh, and provides for that. I'll be honest. I think, you know, in my years now and, you know, with, with more Adam Mead and then Adam Menengeti and now my, myself and Tracy Scott as program director, 
we've been able to successfully remediate almost all of our residents who've gone through this, you know, we, um, which I think has been quite powerful and uh, for us to see, but also for people within our, for residents within our program to see that there is a pathway back. Uh, you know, most of those people who had struggles and who we remediated through are now, you know, practicing surgeons in our local BC community and, uh, and doing quite well and thriving. So there is a path. It just is a path that requires a lot of work and support around it. And a lot of commitment from the trainees part as well. Like they have to be committed to the journey because as you just outlined, so for some people, it just gets too much to bear. Well, that's a, that's a testament to, to each of you. And to be honest with the, with the four of the, the names, including yourself that you just described, I'm, I'm not surprised. And, you know, I, I would imagine that taking uh, a trainee and successfully shepherding them through that process and helping them, you, you probably get more satisfaction out of, out of that than even the sort of rock star trainee that flies through a program and doesn't have any issues whatsoever. Eh? Well, you know, the rock star trainee is an interesting one, right, Chad? Like they are probably like, we're probably as training firms getting in their way. You know, like they are, they're going to figure out a way of kind of thriving and, and, and excelling no matter what kind of training program they're in. And so they, for them, you're right, it's a different kind of situation. But, it, but, but, but each of the people that I've named, whether it's Morad or Tracy or myself, we get so, we do get a lot of joy out of those, out of that work we're able to do in shepherding these residents through. And then when we, you know, see them out in practice and we hear positive comments about them from people who didn't know they ever struggled, it is, you know, it's, it's really heartwarming and puts us a nice, happy, smiley space. You know, it's interesting. One of my very, very good friends was the program director for quite a while of general surgery at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And he had a number of interesting experiences uh, during his time in that role, one of which was the frequency with which residents would sue uh, the program in the university. So one of the first things he did was create a, a committee, a professionalism committee, um, constructed of uh, broad representation from trainees and faculty and, and non-department of, uh, of surgery members uh, for sure. And when a resident uh, broke uh, what they then constructed as a code of conduct, a code of professional behavior, they went before that committee for an evaluation. Essentially, they had, they had two free passes at it. And by the third time, they were generally ejected from the program. When he constructed that that sort of platform and that process, the uh, the lawsuits went to zero uh, almost immediately. Um, and it's interesting for me to think about in the context of of Canadian centers for sure, which are there's no doubt different. But I'm curious, you know, the issue of professionalism uh, intersects sometimes with lack of insight, uh, or certainly can. So, how many of these issues do you think? you have in, in your program and in Canada in general surround the concept of, of professionalism. You know, before you answer, the, the other interesting thing within this code of conduct of, of professional behavior was some, was some very intriguing um, line items. One of them, for example, is that you should be responding to a professional-related work email within 24 hours if you're not on vacation. Um, I think to some people that probably sounds a little bit uh, excessive, but um, to others, it sounds uh, sort of dead on. So, uh, again, I'm curious, how does a professionalism or lack thereof intersect with with uh, with trainees in, in your experience? I think that is a really important issue to raise, uh, Chad, because I think uh, professionalism is one of those things that it's hard to describe, but we all know what it means in a surgical context. And, you know, we want to train residents who are, who reflect, kind of the values of our profession and uh, are able to reflect the uh, kind of the 
the best of, of, of a kind of professional behavior in that context. And so what your colleague and friend has seems to have done in USC is really, I think, important. Like as a program, you really have to work hard to define what is acceptable and what is unacceptable behavior. And once you've defined that, you have to hold to it. Um, because if you, uh, you know, for example, if a resident is having multiple encounters with medical students, and they're putting it in their evaluations that this resident is, you know, not supportive or is being bullying or is giving them or is uh, creating an unsafe work environment. Well, as a program, it's actually really critically important that you call out that uh, problem as soon as you hear about it. But I think, th does that mean, and I think that's what really helps you to, to create the space where, you know, where professionalism actually gets headed off almost at the pass, where the remediation issues you're dealing with aren't about, you know, uh, inability to work with teams or being rude with nurses or uh, other kinds of really challenging things. Because those you're calling right at the top, those are things which, you know, if they happen once, you're going to be put on watch. If they happen twice, then the next time it happens, you know, it's like that three strikes and you're out rule almost, you know, and you have to hold yourself to that. That applies to faculty members as well, to be frank with you, Chad, because one of the bigger things with this is that we'll hold residents to standards we don't hold faculty members to. And so we need to make sure we do all of those things to be able to create an environment where um, professionalism gets called out. Um, we've been lucky at, uh, at UBC in my time here that while we've had occasional professionalism complaints about residents, we haven't had anyone who we had to uh, take seriously to task because of that. But I think it's mostly because of our culture where we call people out right away. So if I get a message or a phone call today, I'll be on with the phone with the resident along with Tracy and sometimes even Morad is division head within like the hour to say, hey, we heard this. What's your side wow. of it and what happened? You know, one of the things, if we shift gears a little bit here, that uh, a group of us is trying to do in Alberta, led by uh, Sean Gregg and, and a number of others, is to integrate artificial intelligence uh, into some of the, uh, not only clinical algorithms, but just overall patient care that, that we provide. And it's a little bit tangential. Initially, I think, you know, we're trying to use AI to screen for mental illness in the context of pancreatic cancer. Um, but I do wonder when, when you look at how fast AI has, has come, uh, what its intersection or role will be in some of the interviewing processes that we have potentially down the road for general surgery residency. Um, you know, it's really interesting. This single company that, that we've been involved with did 19 million interviews, I believe, um, in the U.S. alone in 2019. And there was a lot of big companies involved, McDonald's, Price Waterhouse, Kraft Heinz, and, and so on. And essentially, as a as a candidate or as an applicant to these jobs, um, you would sit down in front of uh, uh, an AI algorithm with the video on and answer a, a number of questions over 20 to 25 minutes, um, and uh, it would essentially uh, pre-screen you before you got to a second cycle or a second round, uh, maybe a second tier uh, that may or may not be then a real person interviewing you uh, in, in real time. And it's interesting to look at those algorithms. You know, if it was to ask a question, for example, about teamwork, and the applicant answered the question using the word I instead of we, that would be one of these filters that, that would be uh, considered a, a negative scenario. Um, I, I'm curious then in terms of, again, applications and uh, selection concepts in general, 
my sense is that we don't really do a superb job of selecting residents uh, to our programs up front. I think we like to think we do, um, but at the, at the end of the day, I think there's probably still a very arbitrary nature to to a lot of it. Maybe that's the wrong word, but there is certainly risk to it. So I'm I'm curious. Um, do you think we're we're good at selecting folks into our programs and? With things like AI and and uh, comparing it to the current structure and the current process, uh, what do you think we we go forward uh, from here to improve things? That was exactly Tracy's and my big concern around how are we going to select residents better when we haven't actually had any face to face time through this weird CARMS year that we had. And so we reached out to this company called Talent Click. Uh, they're a large multinational company based out of Vancouver that does exactly this kind of work that you talked about for multiple Fortune 500 companies. And we reached out to them and said, hey, listen, what do you guys do for this? And they came, so what, so, so they came up with this idea of utilizing um, an online questionnaire that each of the trainees fills out, which is about takes about 20 minutes for them to do. So what, how did they base it? Well, they first got, told us to get 10 um, faculty members who we consider leaders in our program to fill it out, to define what the you know, what the, what, what the criteria and what the kind of the, what the best resident would be or the best surgeon would be. And then they made us run it through our resident group. So we ran it through about half of them. And they used that to create this profile of what the, kind of like the machine learning thing you spoke about, of what the resident would look, what the perfect resident would look like for our program. And we then actually, I mean, we just have gone going through the CARMS process. We actually got all of the CARMS candidates to fill this questionnaire out and it assigns them a score that kind of ranges from uh you know kind of like a zero to a hundred but we trialed this at first with our international interviews with our saudi and our omani candidates because we were super stressed because they couldn't come for electives we never you know we didn't know who they were and i'll be honest with you the questionnaires that they filled out were frightfully accurate like, for example, the team quest. So, you know, there was one candidate who scored poorly on team. And so they, they tell you what question to ask about team. So you ask this generic question, which you think is going to be too easy. And all this candidate did for 12 minutes after that was talk about I, I, I. And when we asked other candidates that question who had scored higher on, this, on the score, they were, didn't do that. And it was such a sharp, stark contrast for us. So we learned a lot from that and we're actually using that this year. We'll find out how that works out or not, but you're right. We need to use some of these technologies a lot more. Um, you know, you can get hired into a senior leadership position at a large Canadian bank without filling out something like that. You and I have t talked about this a lot and, uh, you know, we, we've talked about how Malcolm Gladwell's whole uh, concept around this, he talks about in revisionist history about sort of being a hiring nihilist and, and this idea that we just, perhaps aren't as good as we, we think we are at selecting uh, people with the quote-unquote the right stuff. And so you know, I certainly do think that there's going to be some component that's going to be objective. You know, I don't think you can completely eliminate uh, the, the subjective component of, you know, do we, do we think this person will, will make a, have a good fit? Uh, but, you know, it makes sense that there's going to be some objective measures or some objective process for, for uh, getting residents. Uh, one of the other things that uh, I'm very excited about that you and Dr. Scott have put in place this year is is blinding for um, applications um, for the reviewers. Can you talk a little bit about 
why you are blinding and, and what exactly that entails. So, you know, you brought up Malcolm Gladwell, so I'll put in a plug, a surgical, uh, sorry, talking about uh, higher nihilism, talking to strangers is an, ex- is an excellent book that actually talks about just that, about how poor we are as people in judging others and determining if they're going to be good fits or not. Uh, so I think that's been, I think, an important thing for us to remember is that especially in this era where we're becoming more and more aware of, of issues around diversity and inclusivity, that our conversations around fit have to be based on more factual things than um, than the more uh, uh, more highly visible or more explicit things that we are able to see about people. And that's where I think questionnaires and machine intelligence uh, things in the long run are going to help be helpful for us to define what we mean by someone being a better fit or a good fit um, and how that can extend to candidates of uh, of, of, of color or candidates of different gender or candidates from different background experiences. So there is a clear role for this. And I think we have to figure out what that is because the human equation, uh, as Malcolm Gladwell quite kind of, I think, cons- uh, convincingly talks about in talking with strangers is, is, you know, isn't very good. We're not good at this stuff. And uh, so I think that's important for us to reflect on. Uh, what, what, what we're doing this year for blinding um, is uh, something that I think has taken us a lot of work and time to come to. But, uh, you know, CARMA's applicants put a lot of effort into their files and they put in a lot of detail and they put in their, you know, they, they have struggled to find referees who identify, who write great reference letters about them. Um, but it always, uh, but we are, and, and something we've learned from, again, the human resources literature is that knowing a candidate's name and gender can influence the way in which you rank or you uh, assess them. And so what we decided to do this year is, is that we were going to um, look through all of our CARMS files, 110 applicants this year, and we were going to remove all references to their name and to their gender from the document itself. And we were going to use that, uh, and then we were going to do, do our shortlisting kind of from this anonymized or blinded file. Uh, so we'll see how that works. Our shortlisting meeting is next week. Um, but uh, we were... Uh, we were quite supported in this by our universities uh, hiring com- uh, people and by Morad as well in trialing this out. Um, and so we'll see how it goes. We're hoping that this will help us select uh, an ever more kind of diverse and representative group of candidates and uh, we'll keep you posted. We, we try and ask all, all our guests a, a common question at the end, which is, you know, if, if you were to, to time travel backwards and, and talk to your younger self, what, what sort of advice would you, would you give yourself? I think uh, what I would say to anyone who asks me this question, and when medical students bring this up as well, is to always remember that residency is a nonstop job interview. Uh, every hour, every encounter is a high stakes encounter for you because they're because working with people who uh, can train you to become excellent uh, and whose advice and counsel you rely on for the rest of your lives. So make those encounters of, high, of, of a high quality uh, and trust in the people who train you. You know, um, you know, when I was in Saskatoon, uh, as scary as it was, when you went to Roger Keith or Andy McFadden and asked them for help, they were always there to help and show and get and guide you. And I think as uh, as for trainees, that's something they need to remember that there are people around them who care and who are there to help. So even though it's going to be high stakes and it's going to be a space in which you have to work really hard. You, you need to ask for help when you do. So I don't know if that's a good answer or not, but that's kind of my thing is just be at your best and ask for help when you need it.
You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thanks again.